Hear the word of the Lord from John chapter 12, verses 1 through 8. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, the home of Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. There they gave him a dinner. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those at the table with him. Mary took a pound of costly perfume made of pure nard, anointed Jesus' feet, and wiped them with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, the one who was about to betray him, said, Why was this perfume not sold for three hundred denarii and the money given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. He kept the common purse and used to steal what was put into it. Jesus said, Leave her alone. She bought it so that she might keep it for the day of my burial. You always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. Imagine the scene. Bethany is just a couple of miles away from Jerusalem. It would already be filling up with the Jews who lived scattered around Palestine and the rest of the world, making their annual pilgrimage for Passover. After Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead just a little while before this, the Pharisees and religious leaders had decided that he had to go. He'd gone from eccentric and interesting rabbi to outright threat. So Jesus had been keeping a low profile, avoiding Jerusalem where there was a bounty on his head. And now, six days before the Passover, he shows back up at Lazarus' house, the scene of the crime, you could say. The fear and anticipation in the air are palpable. Being this close to Jerusalem with Jesus was dangerous, but also in the air is a sense of wonder and excitement. Lazarus was supposed to be dead, but here he was eating Martha's great home cooking along with them. Not only that, the atmosphere seemed to buzz with possibility. The possibility that maybe this kingdom that Jesus had been talking about was finally about to come to fruition. The disciples and Jesus lay around the dinner table. Martha keeps busy serving the food she had crafted all day with care and attention. And Mary, well, per usual, Mary is nowhere to be found. She's certainly not helping serve, but Martha was used to that and had given up on trying to convince her otherwise a long time ago. Suddenly, Mary comes into the room holding something in her hand, and then she goes to the place where we always find Mary, right to the feet of Jesus. But what comes next is anything but usual. Mary opens a 12-ounce jar of pure nard and pours it on Jesus' feet. The air becomes thick with the sharp and sweet smell of perfume, and even thicker with tension. What is she doing? Washing his feet? Only a slave would do that. And besides, women weren't allowed to touch men in public. In fact, they weren't really even supposed to to speak to them. The disciples watch, uncomfortable but curious, unable to take their eyes off of the scene unfolding before them. But then she reaches up and loosens the fabric from around her head and lets down her hair, wiping Jesus' sweetly scented feet with it. At this point, the disciples steal hesitant glances at one another, absolutely aghast. A woman's hair, her glory, was to be seen by her husband and no one else. Judas is the first to speak up, getting over his shock to rebuke Mary for this terrible waste. This oil was really expensive, 
a massive amount of pure nard, a luxury item costing an entire year's wages. That amount of oil would have been enough to last for dozens of uses, or better yet, it could have been sold and the money given to feed a family, or even two, for a full year. I can just see the other disciples raising their eyebrows and nodding in agreement. He has a fair point. And really, this display of Mary's was just downright inappropriate. She should have been more modest. But Jesus refuses to let the disciples belittle her gift. He treats her with dignity and respect. Rather than affirming a culture that sexualizes the hair or mere touch of a woman, he affirms her and her right to be there. She is more than what the men in the room think about her. Jesus honors this holy wastefulness, this lavish and generous and undignified display of devotion. Leave her alone, he says. Mary, the prophet, has a word from God. And maybe you need to hear this sermon. John's gospel is very specific. Mary anoints Jesus' feet. It would have made more sense to anoint his head. Kings had their heads anointed, and everyone in the room would have gotten behind the idea of Jesus as their reigning king, especially as opposed to Caesar. Oils might have been poured on wounds to aid in the healing process or on the body for hygienic purposes, but you just didn't go around anointing feet, except for burial, that is. Jesus said that she has kept it for the day of his burial. Many of the resources that I used to prepare for the sermon suggested that Mary didn't know that this is what she was doing. Her act was one of devotion, surely. After all, Jesus had raised her beloved brother from the dead. It makes sense that this was her way of giving thanks or perhaps even for apologizing for having been angry at Jesus for letting Lazarus die in the first place. If this were a prophetic act, it must have been accidental. She couldn't have known that Jesus was about to die and that she would be deprived of an opportunity to anoint his dead body, seeing as how the tomb would be empty by the time the women came with their burial spices. But I wonder if by making this assumption, we too are belittling her gift, just like Judas and the disciples did. In many of the gospel accounts, the disciples are seen as bumbling and slow. They just don't get it. They've heard Jesus say outright that he will die. They've heard him say that the first will be last. They've heard him say that to be great, you must become a servant. And they just never get it. But Mary, bold and brave, does. See, every time we encounter Mary, she is at Jesus' feet, sitting and listening as a disciple, flung at his feet in anger and fear and confusion as her brother's body decays in a tomb just over there. And here, in an act of service so humble, it would have been an indecent embarrassment to those who watched. So perhaps this devoted disciple that Jesus obviously loved a great deal knew exactly what she was doing. Perhaps she had understood what her rabbi had been teaching her all along. Her prophetic, her prophetic act reveals the truth about Jesus and what he had come to do. It makes me wonder if perhaps the root of Jesus, Judas's protest comes from what is at stake if what Mary is doing is right. What would that mean for them if this is how a disciple should act? Would they too have to reduce themselves to the role of servant? Would they have to offer what was most precious to them? Mary serves as a contrast to Judas and the other disciples. 
John makes it clear that hers is the example of discipleship that we are to follow. She serves without having to be shown how. Jesus, just a handful of days later, will take the position of servant and wash his disciples' feet, saying that they too must learn how to serve if they want to follow him. But Mary, she already knows how to serve. She humbles herself, willing to be humiliated and vulnerable if it meant sharing in the life and in the death of Christ, if it means being able to sit at the feet of Jesus. And if they hadn't been so busy judging her gift, they may have seen this more clearly. Mary's act of service and devotion is one of extravagance. John's gospel shows us that the kingdom of God is marked by abundance. Jesus' first act of ministry is to turn 120 gallons of water into wine. That's more than 600 bottles of wine. He doesn't just bless, he lavishes. He feeds crowds of thousands with mere handfuls of food, but somehow there are armloads left over. In his own words, he came that we may have life and have it abundantly. He is the bread of life that will never run out. He is the water that will never run dry. He is the life and the fullest, best life that you could imagine. The kingdom of God is not like the kingdoms of this world who are driven by a fear of scarcity, where you have to hustle and scramble to make sure that you have enough. There's abundance in the kingdom of God. Sociologists note that we're living in a culture of scarcity today, even if reality proves otherwise. The narrative that we hear in the news from our politicians and as we scroll through Facebook and Instagram is that there's not enough. There's not enough safety, there's not enough resources, there's not enough power. And scarcity leads to hoarding. It leads to greed, as we see in Judas. Mary shows us what a mindset of abundance looks like. It looks like extravagant love and humble service. In fact, it looks a lot like the way of Jesus, who out of love humbled himself, even to death on a cross. A way marked by giving, by submitting, by loving even when it makes no sense. It looks like being willing to use the most precious things that you have for the purposes of the kingdom of God. It means picking up your cross and following him. But fair warning, living like this, as Mary learned, means that people will always grumble. They may misunderstand. You may find yourself, like Mary, in some pretty awkward positions, never quite doing what is expected of you. But as this story reminds us, those grumbles usually have a lot more to do with them than they do with you. And fair warning, when you live like this, you just might find yourself at the feet of Jesus. Jesus.